0: Section fourteen of Tales of Unrest, third part of The Return. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ray Tales of Unrest by Joseph Conrad, third part of The Return. He caught sight of himself in one of the looking-glasses. It was a relief. The anguish of his feeling had been so powerful that he more than half expected to see some distorted wild face there, and he was pleasantly surprised to see nothing of the kind. His aspect, at any rate, would let no one into the secret of his pain. He examined himself with attention. His trousers were turned up and his boots a little muddy, but he looked very much as usual. Only his hair was slightly ruffled, and that disorder somehow was so suggestive of trouble that he went quickly to the table, and began to use the brushes, in an anxious desire to obliterate the compromising trace, that only vestige of his emotion. He brushed with care, watching the effect of his smoothing, and another face, slightly pale and more tense than was perhaps desirable, peered back at him from the toilet glass. He laid the brushes down, and was not satisfied. He took them up again and brushed—brushed mechanically, forgot himself in that occupation. The tumult of his thoughts ended in a sluggish flow of reflection, such as, after the outburst of a volcano, the almost imperceptible progress of a stream of lava creeping languidly over a convulsed land, and pitilessly obliterating any landmark left by the shock of the earthquake. It is a destructive—but by comparison it is a peaceful— phenomenon. Alvin Hervey was almost soothed by the deliberate pace of his thoughts. His moral landmarks were going one by one, consumed in the fire of his experience, buried in hot mud and ashes. He was cooling on the surface, but there was enough heat left somewhere to make him slap the brushes on the table and turning away, say in a fierce whisper, "'I wish him joy.' Damn the woman!" He felt himself utterly corrupted by her wickedness, and the most significant symptom of his moral downfall was the bitter, acrid satisfaction with which he recognised it. He deliberately swore in his thoughts. He meditated sneers. He shaped in profound silence words of cynical unbelief, and his most cherished convictions stood revealed finally as the narrow prejudices of fools. A crowd of shapeless, unclean thoughts crossed his mind in a stealthy rush, like a band of veiled malefactors hastening to a crime. He put his hands deep into his pockets. He heard a faint ringing somewhere and muttered to himself, "'I am not the only one. Not the only one.' There was another ring. Front door.' His heart leaped up into his throat, and forthwith descended as low as his boots. A call? Who? Why? He wanted to rush out onto the landing and shout to the servant, "'Not at home! Gone away abroad!' Any excuse! He could not face the visitor, not this evening, no, Tomorrow. Before he could break out of the numbness that enveloped him like a sheet of lead, he heard far below, as if in the entrails of the earth, a door close heavily. THE HOUSE VIBRATED TO IT MORE THAN A CLAP OF THUNDER. HE STOOD STILL, WISHING HIMSELF INVISIBLE. THE ROOM WAS VERY CHILLY. HE DID NOT THINK HE WOULD EVER FEEL LIKE THAT. BUT PEOPLE MUST BE MET, THEY MUST BE FACED, TALKED TO, SMILED AT. HE HEARD ANOTHER DOOR, MUCH NEARER, THE DOOR OF THE DRAWING-ROOM, BEING OPENED AND FLUNG TO AGAIN. He imagined for a moment he would faint. How absurd! That kind of thing had to be gone through. A voice spoke. He could not catch the words. Then the voice spoke again, and footsteps were heard on the first floor landing. Hang it all! Was he to hear that voice since those footsteps whenever anyone spoke or moved? He thought, This is like being haunted. I suppose it will last for a week or so, at least. Till I forget, forget! Forget! "'Someone was coming up the second flight of stairs. "'Servant?' "'He listened. "'Then suddenly, as though an incredible, frightful revelation had been shouted to him from a distance, "'he bellowed out in the empty room, "'What, what?' "'In such a fiendish tone as to astonish himself. "'The footsteps stopped outside the door. "'He stood open-mouthed, maddened and still, as if in the midst of a catastrophe. "'The door-handled rattled lightly.' It seemed to him that the walls were coming apart, that the furniture swayed at him, the ceiling slanted queerly for a moment, a tall wardrobe tried to topple over. He caught hold of something, and it was the back of a chair. So he had reeled against a chair. Oh, confound it! He gripped hard. The flaming butterfly, poised between the jaws of the bronze dragon, radiated a glare a glare that seemed to leap up all at once into a crude, blinding fierceness, and made it difficult for him to distinguish plainly the figure of his wife, standing upright with her back to the closed door. He looked at her and could not detect her breathing. The harsh and violent light was beating on her, and he was amazed to see her preserve so well the composure of her upright attitude in that scorching brilliance which, to his eyes, enveloped her like a hot and consuming mist. He would not have been surprised if she had vanished in it as suddenly as she had appeared. He stared and listened, listened for some sound, but the silence around him was absolute, as though he had in a moment grown completely deaf as well as dim-eyed. Then his hearing returned, preternaturally sharp. He heard the patter of a rain-shower on the window-panes behind the lowered blinds, and below, far below, in the artificial abyss of the square— The deadened roll of wheels and the splashy trotting of a horse. He heard a groan also, very distinct, in the room, close to his ear. He thought with alarm, I must have made that noise myself. And at the same instant the woman left the door, stepped firmly across the floor before him, and sat down in a chair. He knew that step. There was no doubt about it. She had come back, and he very nearly said aloud, "'Of course!' Such was his sudden and masterful perception of the indestructible character of her being. Nothing could destroy her, and nothing but his own destruction could keep her away. She was the incarnation of all the short moments which every man spares out of his life for dreams, for precious dreams that concrete the most cherished, the most profitable of his illusions. He peered at her with inward trepidation. She was mysterious, significant, full of obscure meaning, like a symbol. He peered, bending forward as though he had been discovering about her things he had never seen before. Unconsciously, he made a step towards her, then another. He saw arm make an ample, decided movement, and he stopped. She had lifted her veil. It was like the lifting of a visor. The spell was broken— he experienced a shock, as though he had been called out of a trance by the sudden noise of an explosion. It was even more startling and more distinct. It was an infinitely more intimate change. For he had the sensation of having come into this room only that very moment, of having returned from very far. He was made aware that some essential part of himself had in a flash returned into his body, returned finally from a fierce and lamentable region, from the dwelling place of Unveiled Hearts. He woke up to an amazing infinity of contempt, to a droll bitterness of wonder, to a disenchanted conviction of safety. He had a glimpse of the irresistible force, and he also saw the barrenness of his convictions, of her convictions. It seemed to him that he could never make a mistake as long as he lived. It was morally impossible to go wrong. He was not elated by that certitude, he was dimly uneasy about its price. There was a chill as of death, in this triumph of sound principles, in this victory snatched under the very shadow of disaster. The last trace of his previous state of mind vanished, as the instantaneous and elusive trail of a bursting meteor vanishes on the profound blackness of the sky. It was the faint flicker of a painful thought. "'Gone as soon as perceived, that nothing but her presence, after all, had the power to recall him to himself. "'He stared at her. "'She sat with her hands on her lap, looking down. "'And he noticed that her boots were dirty, her skirts wet and splashed, "'as though she had driven back there by a blind fear through a waste of mud. "'He was indignant, amazed, and shocked, but in a natural, healthy way now. "'so that he could control those unprofitable sentiments "'by the dictates of cautious self-restraint. "'The light in the room had no unusual brilliance now. "'It was a good light, "'in which he could easily observe the expression of her face. "'It was that of dull fatigue. "'And the silence that surrounded them "'was the normal silence of any quiet house, "'hardly disturbed by the faint noises "'of a respectable quarter of the town. "'He was very cool.' and it was quite coolly that he thought how much better it would be if neither of them ever spoke again. She sat with closed lips, with an air of lassitude in the stony forgetfulness of her pose, but after a moment she lifted her drooping eyelids and met his tense and inquisitive stare by a look that had all the formless eloquence of a cry. It penetrated, it stirred without informing, it was the very essence of anguish stripped of words that can be smiled at, argued away, shouted down, disdained. It was anguish, naked and unashamed. The bare pain of existence let loose upon the world in the fleeting, of a look that had in it an immensity of fatigue, the scornful sincerity, the black impudence of an extorted confession. Alan Hervey was seized with wonder, as though he had seen something inconceivable, and some obscure part of his being was ready to exclaim with him, I would never have believed it! But an instantaneous revulsion of wounded susceptibilities checked the unfinished thought." He felt full of rancorous indignation against the woman who could look like this at one. This look probed him. It tampered with him. It was dangerous to one, as would be a hint of unbelief whispered by a priest in the august decorum of a temple, and at the same time it was impure, it was disturbing, like a cynical consolation muttered in the dark, tainting the sorrow, corroding the thought, poisoning the heart. He wanted to ask her furiously, "'Who do you take me for? How dare you look at me like this?' He felt himself helpless before the hidden meaning of that look, He resented it with pained and futile violence as an injury so secret that it could never, never be redressed. His wish was to crush her by a single sentence. He was stainless. Opinion was on his side. Morality, men, and gods were on his side. Law, conscience, all the world. She had nothing but that look. And he could only say, "'How long do you intend to stay here?' Her eyes did not waver, her lips remained closed, and for any effect of his words he might have spoken to a dead woman, only that this one breathed quickly. He was profoundly disappointed by what he had said. It was a great deception, something in the nature of treason. He had deceived himself. It should have been altogether different, other words, another sensation. And Before his eyes— So fixed that at times they saw nothing, she sat apparently as unconscious as though she had been alone, sending that look of brazen confession straight at him, with an air of staring into empty space. He said significantly, "'Must I go, then?' And he knew he meant nothing of what he implied. One of her hands on her lap moved slightly as though his words had fallen there, and she had thrown them off on the floor but her silence encouraged him. Possibly it meant remorse—perhaps fear. Was she thunderstruck by his attitude? Her eyelids dropped. He seemed to understand ever so much—everything. Very well. But she must be made to suffer. It was due to him. He understood everything, yet he judged it indispensable to say with an obvious affectation of civility. "'I don't understand, being so good as to—' "'She stood up. "'For a second he believed she intended to go away, "'and it was as though someone had jerked a string attached to his heart. "'It hurt. "'He remained open-mouthed and silent, "'but she made an irresolute step towards him, "'and instinctively he moved aside. "'They stood before one another, "'and the fragments of the torn letter lay between them, at their feet, like an insurmountable obstacle, like a sign of eternal separation. Around them three other couples stood still and face to face, as if waiting for a signal to begin some action, a struggle, a dispute, or a dance. She said, Don't, Alvin. There was something that resembled a warning in the pain of her tone. He narrowed his eyes as if trying to pierce her with his gaze. Her voice touched him. He had aspirations after magnanimity, generosity, superiority—interrupted, however, by flashes of indignation and anxiety, frightful anxiety to know how far she had gone. She looked down at the torn paper. Then she looked up, and their eyes met again, remained fastened together, like an unbreakable bond, like a clasp of eternal complicity, and the decorous silence, The pervading quietude of the house, which enveloped this meeting of their glances, became for a moment inexpressibly vile, for he was afraid she would say too much, and make magnanimity impossible, while behind the profound mournfulness of her face there was a regret, a regret of things done, the regret of delay, the thought that if she had only turned back a week sooner, a day sooner, only an hour sooner, they were afraid to hear again the sound of their voices. They did not know what they might say perhaps something that could not be recalled, and words are more terrible than facts. But the tricky fatality that lurks in obscure impulses spoke through Alan Hervey's lips suddenly, and he heard his own voice, with the excited and sceptical curiosity with which one listens to actors' voices speaking on stage in the strain of a poignant situation. If you have forgotten anything, of course, I... Her eyes blazed at him for an instant. Her lips trembled. And then she also became the mouthpiece of the mysterious force forever hovering near us, of that perverse inspiration, wandering capricious and uncontrollable, like a gust of wind. "'What is the good of this, Alvin? "'You know why I came back. "'You know that I could not— He interrupted her with irritation. "'Then what's this?' he asked, pointing downwards at the torn letter. "'That's a mistake,' she said hurriedly in a muffled voice. This answer amazed him. He remained speechless, staring at her. He had half a mind to burst into a laugh. It ended in a smile as involuntary as a grimace of pain. "'A mistake?' He began, slowly, and then found himself unable to say another word. "'Yes, it was honest,' she said very low, as if speaking to the memory of a feeling in a remote past. "'He exploded. Curse your honesty! Is there any honesty in all this? When did you begin to be honest? Why are you here? What are you now, still honest?' He walked at her, raging as if blind. During these three quick strides, he lost touch of the material world and was whirled interminably through a kind of empty universe made up of nothing but fury and anguish, till he came suddenly upon her face, very close to his. He stopped short, and all at once seemed to remember something heard ages ago. "'You don't know the meaning of the word!' he shouted. She did not flinch. He perceived with fear that everything around him was still. She did not move a hair's breadth. His own body did not stir. An imperturbable calm enveloped their two motionless figures, the house, the town, or the world, and the trifling tempest of his feelings. The violence of the short tumult within him had been such as could well have shattered all creation, and yet nothing was changed. He faced his wife in the familiar room in his own house. It had not fallen, and right and left all the innumerable dwellings, standing shoulder to shoulder, had resisted the shock of his passion, had presented, unmoved, to the loneliness of his trouble, the grim silence of walls, the impenetrable and polished discretion of closed doors and curtained windows. Immobility and silence pressed on him assailed him, like two accomplices of the immovable and mute woman before his eyes. He was suddenly vanquished. He was shown his impotence. He was soothed by the breath of a corrupt resignation coming to him through the subtle irony of the surrounding peace. End of third part of The Return Recording by ray